Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we'll be talking about two weeks worth of Come Follow Me, Doctrine and Covenants 12 and 13, Joseph Smith History 1, 66 through 75, and then Doctrine and Covenants 14 through 17. So, just as a summary of these verses, or these sections, Doctrine and Covenants 12 talks about Joseph Knight, who was really crucial to assisting Joseph with things that he needed for the rest of the translation. Section 13 talks about Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery's ordination to the Aaronic Priesthood. And Joseph Smith History 166-75 also recounts that with actually a little summary from Oliver Cowdery himself about the experience, which is cool. And then Doctrine and Covenants 14 through 16 is Joseph receiving revelation from God about the Whitmer family. And we'll talk more about them in a little bit. Doctrine and Covenants 17 is the choice of the three witnesses, the information behind how the choice was made and the revelation about that. Section 12, I thought, was just kind of repetitive from section four and six about missionary work. If you have desire to serve, that you are called to the work, thrust in your sickle, all that kind of stuff. There was one verse in section 12 that I don't know if it's new, but it stood out to me this time. It's verse eight about the necessary requirement to assist in the work being humility, full of love, having faith, hope, and charity, being temperate in all things, whatsoever shall be entrusted to your care. And I thought that was interesting. I almost wish it was phrased differently. I almost wish it was phrased more like section four, where whoever has desires to serve is called to the work, but instead this is saying, if you are called to the work, you need these things. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I thought that was interesting too. You mentioned before how Every section that it kind of goes through this of why people are called, it kind of shares different information because it's revelation given to Joseph speaking to different people. Yeah. This one, it talks about you're called if you thrust in your sickle and reap. If you, in verse seven, it says, if you desire to bring forth the work. And then verse eight goes into the humility, full of love, faith, hope, charity, temperance. Mm-hmm. And then nine says, you're called if you heed the Lord. So there's a lot of information in this one of why people are called. I found that interesting, too. Does it actually say, if this, then you are called? Not exactly. Not precisely. It just is like, I speak unto you and also to all those who have desires to bring forth and establish this work. And yeah. no one can assist in this work except he shall be humble, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Okay. So there could be other necessary requirements that it's not mentioning. Yeah, like verse 8, I feel like it's so close to like being super inclusive and saying if you have these qualities, then you're called to the work, but that's not actually what it's saying. So it's pretty words, but it's like from a disability standpoint, it kind of disappoints me a little bit because these are qualities that anyone can have, whether they're disabled or not disabled, whether they're neurodivergent or neurotypical. You can have humility and love and faith and hope and charity, etc., So you can have the things that you need to assist in the work, but it still doesn't say, if you have these, then you are called. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Okay. I see what you mean. I mean, and like I said, this isn't to me personally, this is to um, 
Joseph Knight, but I thought if we we're going to use exegesis or whatever, exegesis, I can't say that word, Derek would know. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, if we're going to apply the scriptures to ourselves, I feel like this verse is so close to being, like, really validating and fulfilling for people who have wanted to serve, but there were structures in the way that prevented them from doing so. It just fell a little short because it's necessary requirement, not sufficient requirements. Okay, yeah. I thought it was cool in, let's see. Oh, I don't have any more notes except moving on to Joseph Smith history. Is that cool with you? Yeah, we can move on to the ordination of the priesthood. So Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were ordained to the Aaronic priesthood along the banks of the Susquehanna River by John the Baptist. They were ordained to the priesthood and then they baptized each other. And then immediately after they were baptized, their minds were enlightened and they spoke prophecies and scriptures were laid open to their understanding even the true meanings of the more mysterious passages i thought this section was really cool especially oliver cowdery's description like wow he's a good writer yes yeah it was super just humbling and enlightening to read the way he worded the events i guess I feel like you're just like, this is so cool. This is so enlightening. This is so full of the spirit. And I'm like, (laughs) critique, 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 you know? (laughs) Well, what's your thoughts? What are you thinking? I have a lot of thoughts. Even though this is the shortest section of the chapters that we're going to be talking about today, I have the most notes about it. Okay. (laughs) Like... If you're Oliver Cowdery and you're Joseph and you feel like you can't act until you have some sort of stamp of approval from God, then I feel like this is really revelatory. This is really comforting. This is like standing on top of a mountain and being like, I can see now because now I can act, right? But if you don't buy into that, and kind of like what we were talking about with Brooke last week, my personal authority has shifted from being outside of me in church leaders, in prophets, and etc., to being inside of me. And so from my, in my opinion, I'm just kind of like, you don't need to wait for God to give you authority to do things. In order for this to be exciting and fulfilling, there has to be a void of authority. Does that make sense? But if you don't believe that that void is there, then this is just kind of like, meh. (laughs) So you personally believe that authority is not crucial, or you believe that it never was gone and it's just people can act in their own authority, period? I think people look to godly authority too often instead of trusting themselves and instead of validating each other's experiences as a community. And I think that when we look to authority too often, then we lose out on opportunities to minister to each other one-on-one and we lose sight of what makes a community great. That's interesting. It's cool to think about how this was like at the end of the scriptures, uh, the process of translating, I mean, that they Mm -hmm. received the Aaronic Priesthood. I didn't think about that, that Joseph, he was able to do everything up to that point without the authority. Yeah. So he was still able to bring about miraculous things. There's revelations that were given to him on behalf of other people that are recorded in Doctrine and Covenants before he had the Aaronic Priesthood either. So he was still able to commune with God directly and receive revelations for himself and for other people and for the work. 
in my mind, the priesthood is specifically, I mean, you can do priesthood blessings. There's a lot of ways you can use the priesthood. But the reason why it was brought forth in this moment was to bring about ordinances. I don't believe Joseph did any ordinances before he had the priesthood. And right after he received the priesthood, they baptized each other. If you look at it, they used the priesthood to ordain each other before they had even received the ordination. Does that make sense? It is a little complicated process, but I think they got the authority first from the angel and then they baptized each other. And Ryan, he's always like, it's funny that they got priesthood authority but weren't baptized yet but then they had to have the authority to be baptized like it's a little bit of a complicated thing but that's how it goes when it's like they're establishing things well but i think this goes to show that god's power does not need to be tied to authority because god gave them power to baptize one another without them officially having authority yet god gave them power to ordain one another before they were even ordained each other I understand what you're saying. I am confused about the order of events, though, because it says Joseph's account in verse 72. It was on the 15th of May, 1829, that we were ordained under the hand of this messenger, the angel John the Baptist, and baptized. And then they baptized each other. So it looks like they were ordained by the messenger directly. And then they baptized each other. Like, John the Baptist didn't baptize them. But they set each other apart, though, is what I'm saying. And they gave each other the priesthood before they even had it themselves. Okay, uh, Joseph Smith History 171. Accordingly, we went and were baptized. I baptized him first, and afterwards he baptized me, after which I laid my hands upon his head and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood. And afterwards he laid his hands on me, and ordained me to the same priesthood, for so we were commanded. So they ordained each other before they even had their own ordination. Oh, well, 68 and 69 is the angel first giving them an ordination. So a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light, ordained us, saying, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, confer the priesthood of Aaron. Okay, but then why why was it necessary for them to be ordain to ordain each other if the angel had already given it to them? I don't yeah, I don't know that part. Because because the angel gave them the power to do it, but not the authority, which is the ordination. Does that make sense? Like the priesthood we talk about there's two elements, there's power and authority. And Faithful Feminist goes into this really well this week about the difference between the two and how we usually use the word priesthood to like talk about both. But we really need to learn to separate them. How I understand it, verse 68, like you were talking about the angel gave them the power. So God gave them the power, but he didn't give them the authority. They had to ordain each other. They had to give each other the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. Oh, I see. Sorry that took me so long to understand. I understand now. Wow. Okay. It's confusing because it is almost paradoxical. Like, God's power didn't need authority. It worked even before they gave each other authority. So they didn't have authority. They gave it to each other. But then how did they have the authority to give it to one another? Well, they just gave it to them. I think this is interesting because it shows that God's power does not need authority because they acted with God's power without authority. And you see that when they laid their hands on each other's head, they use God's power without authority. You see that when they baptize each other, they use God's power without authority. You, you see that like you were talking about with translation, they use God's power without authority. 
you know? And so it's so interesting to me that we cling to authority in the church these days and say you must be ordained to this level to enact these ordinances. And if you're a woman, you have power within you. You just can't use it at all. And and this is what the majority of my notes are on. I talked about organizational communication because I took an organizational communication class as part of my bachelor's degree, and it was one of my favorite classes. There's a continuum when you talk about organizational structures. You have classical, which is like hierarchy, bureaucratic, and the communication only goes one way from the top down, right? This came about during the Industrial Revolution because it was meant to organize really large organizations and maximize productivity. The whole point of a classical organization and bureaucratical organization like that is to advance a capitalist mindset, which is really interesting because if we believe when Christ comes back to the earth that we won't have any hunger, etc. Like then like if you believe in the whole law of consecration, then having a classical organization, like it's irrelevant at that point. All that bureaucracy and all that hierarchy. So you have classical and then you go along the continuum and then you go all the way to humanistic and even past that um, you have like postmodernism, which is really interesting, where it just like throws out all the all the rules, um, which includes lots of different elements. I'll give you a note from one of my teachers on one of my assignments from this class. She remarks that postmodernism urges less boundaries between positions and employment levels. Doing this increases the feeling of community between all staff and hopefully spurs creativity in the sense that employees would feel free to express ideas not only to co-workers but to their supervisors. And then she's just asked for my case study, are they implementing this or should they be? If so, how? This style also places a stronger emphasis on providing meaning for employees and a greater level of freedom to empower them in generating ideas and in making decisions. Are these types of things being implemented? And personally, I don't feel like the church is like that at all. I mean, there's some discrepancies between classical structures and the church because classical structures You have very delineated roles, very descriptive job descriptions, and it's very specialized to increase the efficacy. One person cannot do the job of another person because they do that one job so well. Does that make sense? So that you have production constantly going so that you have everybody on the line of production being the most specialized that they can, right? So in that sense, the church is not like that at all because we have, well, At least at first glance, I'll say that because we have callings that kind of rotate and people don't stay in their callings for a super long time. Like the whole, the whole shtick is like, oh, you can go from being in the bishopric to being in the nursery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that that's the way it is theoretically. So theoretically, it's not classical in that regard. However, and oh, this is a good podcast, too, that everybody should listen to. At Last She Said It. It's another Mormon women's podcast. The hosts have been in Relief Society a super long time and just kind of talk about, like, over the years, the changes that they've seen. I think it was in one of their priesthood episodes. They talk about how it seemed like their wards have like the same nine families that always do the most important callings, you know, and they just kind of rotate between them. And that actually there is very little 
change in terms of like power up and down. Does that make sense? Like the whole bishopric to the nursery thing is actually very rare in reality, which I thought was super interesting. That is really interesting that there's a couple different ways to look at it. It is a common thing to say like bishopric or stake president to nursery, but if it happens in the At Last She Said It podcast, they say it's almost like a temporary like we'll just put you in this spot and then, you know, a month later you moved into a different yeah. leadership position. Yeah. Oh, so you have listened to that episode. Yeah, you posted that one on your Instagram and I listened to it. Ah! <laughs> Yay! You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah. It's a really good episode. I wish I knew yeah. the number or the name of it, but it was within the last month or so, anyway. Yeah, I guess I don't know how this relates to disability directly. Like you have to, you have to kind of read between the lines to see it. But I've just been thinking about what Brooke said last week so much. Like the church has most of of these classical industrial capitalistic characteristics, like specialization and division of labor. So we talked about that already. Rules and regulations. We have a ton of rules and procedures hierarchy of authority, having the general shape of a pyramid. So you have to answer to your immediate supervisors and you rarely like go above that. You rarely talk to the stake president without talking to the bishop first, you know. Formal communication should flow along the lines the hierarchy of authority has prescribed. Detailed job descriptions, like I said, less on that. Employment based on expertise, less on that, except like how many times do we see bishops who like are richer than everybody else in their ward. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's like the assumption is if they have, like, I think it's a good thing, I guess, to ask somebody who is well off in life to serve other people, right? Like if someone is struggling to, to make ends meet, I can imagine how people in power would say, oh, we don't want to put them in charge because they already have too much to handle. But at the same time, like, you're really not... I don't know, you're, you're devaluing like a whole nother set of, of experiences and perspectives by doing that. And just kind of like what we were talking about, like how often do we see disabled people in positions of authority? You know, like the assumption is you, you need to be well off. You need to be capable and able to a certain extent to be a bishop or a stake president, you know, mm-hmm. and there are all these like unsaid things that mean someone is not able, you know. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there's literal barriers and then there's hypothetical or like barriers that people assume or are stereotypical. So let's say a bishop that's well off right now was, you know, struggling as a newlywed and had lived that life before they could draw on that experience. But able-bodied people can't draw on the experience of being disabled before, usually. Yes, But yeah, both someone who's more poor and someone who's disabled would be put in the same box. Oh, they're not capable. They're not able to do it because of these things that they face. Mm -hmm. When being disabled, I mean, a lot of times it's tied with being lower income because of barriers we face, but it's different experiences. There's different things that come from it. Like the connection of being disabled to not being able to serve in a certain calling overall, Mm -hmm. I would say doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, if someone asks, like, me or my husband, Ryan, who's in a wheelchair, to do a certain thing with our calling, like, when Boy Scouts was still a thing in the church, we were scout leaders, 
and we had to deliver something to a bunch of different doors and some of them have like, mm-hmm. you know, 10 steps up and that was really hard for us. So that's, that's not practical, but like yeah. having a calling like a bishop, there aren't really physical barriers. There's time commitments, which could stress out a disabled body, but I'm yeah. sure there could be accommodations made where someone, I mean, you know, the Lord could make accommodations. Yeah. The ward could be aware of that and someone could totally have that calling that's disabled. And I'm sure a few people have. I haven't seen it very much in my own life, but I'm sure it's happened. It's just not as common as you would think it would be due to how many people should be disabled in the church based on stats. Yeah. So yeah, I think a lot of the barriers are placed on disabled people by able-bodied people because of assumptions. And you could say that's hindering the Lord's work. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I think whenever we make people feel like they're not good enough, I think that's hindering the Lord's work. Yeah. Or like they can't, they're just not up to the task. Yeah. Like example, in my life, which seems really small, I took seven, eight years of piano lessons before I developed cataplexy. Now the problem with my cataplexy is whenever my emotions fluctuate, my, my muscles, they just don't work right. I've had callings where I play the piano in relief society or worse (laughs) in sacrament meeting I can't tell you how quickly I've been relieved of that calling just because how nervous I've gotten to play the piano in front of everybody and because of that my fingers don't work it doesn't matter how much I practice in advance if I was nervous then then I would mess up during the the song you know Mm. I mean and I wouldn't like butcher it completely it'd just be like a couple off things here and there you know what I mean Mm -hmm. there's just certain expectation that you're allowed to be imperfect for a certain amount of time but then there's an expectation that you'll like overcome it you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and when you don't the people are like "Eh, maybe we should find somebody else to do this (laughs) uh sorry I should laugh but that's just ironic like we know that people are imperfect we encourage people to you know do their best and repent and move forward Mm mm-hmm I mean, not that you have to repent for a disability, but my connection is when you're imperfect at playing the piano in sacrament, they're like, oh, we can't have that. And then they move. <laughs> like, that's so strange. Oh, I mean, funny. like I said, they tolerated it to a certain extent, but I think I even, who was it? I think it was in my ward in Rexburg, the Relief Society president came up to me and just pulled me aside and it was like, we'll have someone else play the piano today. <laughs> oh. like, like, okay. like, thank you for doubting me and for not, it's not even like doubting me because I know that, yeah, I mess up. It's just like the complete lack of tolerance. Anyway, what you're talking about is actually more towards humanism, which is on the other end of the spectrum from classical organizations. So a humanistic perspective on management, it considers human interactions and relationships as vital to organizational success. So this guy, R.L. Daft, wrote a book (laughs) called Management, and he says, the humanistic perspective on management emphasizes the importance of understanding human behaviors, needs, and attitudes in the workplace, as well as social interactions and group processes. 
And then this other person, Kay Blanchard, says in Leading at a Higher Level that, quote, empowerment is the process of unleashing the power in people, their knowledge, experience, and motivation, and focusing that power to achieve positive outcomes for the organization, end quote. And so it goes on to say the humanistic perspective is all about empowering employees rather than controlling them. Oh, and then another quote from that person is, empowerment means that people have the freedom to act. It also means that they are accountable for their results. So that you need to have freedom and accountability. It's interesting. I feel like the church tries to do this when it comes to callings and such, or just in general. Like we try to consider, like when you're in ward council or whatever, like thinking about someone who's less active, which I fall into that category now. <laughs> But like, what do they need? We, we try to see things from their perspective, but I feel like those good intentions and trying to see things from a humanistic perspective, I feel like they're always curtailed by these rules and regulations and bureaucracies. Like we can approach it from a humanistic perspective from a certain extent, but at a certain point, like, nope. And actually there, there are studies, and I found some when I was looking at this this morning, that talk about how humanistic organizations and postmodern organizations, they fail most often when they're trying to be integrated into an already bureaucratic classical organization and the integration is not set up correctly. Does that make sense? Um, say again why they would fail. I'm like following you up until that point. I guess it's all a spectrum, right? You have the spectrum of classical to humanistic and after that postmodern. Postmodern is completely throwing out all the rules and expectations. So it's even like more radical than humanistic. Okay. And so an organization can have different aspects to it. Like maybe the rules, the way it approaches rules is humanistic, but the way it approaches hierarchy is classical or vice versa. So an organization is usually not all classical or all humanistic or all postmodern, etc. It's usually a blend between it. Like we've seen in the church, right? The church tries to be humanistic in the way it treats callings, but then at a certain point, the classicalism and the need to be productive, the need to make something perfect, takes over. So these studies that I was looking at this morning are saying that humanistic organizational principles and postmodern organizational principles don't fail on their own. They fail because of the expectations that the classical elements put on them. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I'm getting, like, way too nerdy in this episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it when that happens, though. <laughs> I'm trying to bring this back to the scriptures. My whole point of this is to try to imagine an organization of the church that's not based on hierarchy. Because even Brooke said they wouldn't want to have a calling because it'd be too demanding. And like you even said, like sometimes callings might be too demanding in terms of time for a disabled person who only has a certain amount of time and energy each day to complete a task. Mm -hmm. As long as we have this church structure that is motivated and originated in the Industrial Revolution and focused on productivity and perfection, then people with disabilities who just simply cannot exist within that structure, who simply by virtue of their existence rebel against that structure because a lot of times we're not productive and we're definitely not quote-unquote perfect then we will never have power within that structure just simply because of the way those things are and we run counter to 
those expectations and there's no place for us in there when they're constantly pushing for productivity, you know, or like ultra focus on on statistics, etc. When you're on a mission, I mean, how much pressure does that put on missionaries, these young kids to like have results and then the humanistic principles of like actually caring about their investigators and taking things at their investigators pace like those go by the wayside, you know, and then that that's the whole productivity mindset that I'm talking about here. Tell me your thoughts. So I'm trying to remember how this connects back to Oliver Cowdery and Joseph. How did we? Because we're talking about that? authority and oh, authority, authority is <laughs> authority okay. and structure. And uh, like, if you don't have authority, then then the structure is radically different, you know. But when you have this need for authority then it just, it, it kind of naturally flows into this pyramid-shaped structure like the church is right now. Mm, okay. Yeah, it makes sense. If you think about Christ, obviously, the way he worked was more humanistic. So yeah. there's a little bit of a conflict there. Well, ministering helps with that. Like, there's structure in ministering, but then obviously ministering itself is humanistic. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of both. One of the books I've been reading on disability and disability advocacy talks about how disabled people need to like create their own communities of caregivers. And sometimes those people within those communities are disabled as well. So just all this constant like ministering to one another, right? But if you look at that, that's not hierarchical, that's community-based. So in my opinion, Mm. it's almost like the whole idea of callings and authority it's kind of a law of Moses thing where they're only there because we're so bad at ministering to one another, like on our own, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. I think the church could take a page out of the disabled handbook in that sense. That's just the challenge of mortality is, am I a caring enough person to minister to the people around me? And am I humble enough to accept help when I need it? Because if I am, then it just all goes in an eternal round, right? then there is no hierarchy and then everybody's needs are being met. And I think that's kind of what Brooke was talking about with social ecology theory last week. Yeah, it is interesting when they first announced ministering. I I hope this isn't too rude, but initially I was like, is it just, well, and I think President Nelson said this too when they announced it, or one of the leaders said, we don't want this to be visiting teaching, but just under a different name. Like we don't want it to be the exact same thing. (laughs) But then when Wards enacted it, like it didn't change a lot in that sense. Yeah. Like it was just kind of like the structure behind it was the same. My ward, I believe it's pretty unique in the church in that our bishop got permission from the stake president. And I don't know if the stake president had to get permission too or how that worked. But we literally, the bishop instructed us to pray every day on who we can minister to, focus on our neighbors, like those directly mm-hmm. around us in our neighborhood. Um, but just to pray to God to ask who needs help, and we don't have any assignments at all. And I love that. Yeah, we get interviewed quarterly. Uh, it changed with the pandemic, but we still get interviewed <laughs> frequently on how our ministering is going and what our needs are, if we have ministering needs. Yeah. And that interview is done by someone in the ward council, so not necessarily the bishopric. Oh, so it could be a woman interviewing you. Yeah. Yeah, so we still have a way that we're kind of held accountable to our covenant mm-hmm. promise to minister to others, but it's not so structured where it's like, hey, you have to
have to talk to this random person who you might not have any connections with, you know, like it's, yeah. it's done in a way where it's, we can act according to our abilities and our insights. I really, really love how it's been going in the ward. It seems like it's working out really well. And Bishop said, we're only going to do it if we are making sure that no one gets left by the wayside. Cause that was his biggest yeah. fear is like, if there's, you know, popular people in the ward that get ministered to more than others or people that the ward just you know it's based on kind of who you know yeah and that's why there was such a big focus on like make sure your neighbors around you are okay because yeah. they may not necessarily be there at church every Sunday but they still need to be ministered to you know I adore that it's just an example of how the church can work without all these structures without all these hierarchies without all these limitations on human potential. I think that's exactly the sort of thing that Brooke would love. <laughs> Just being able to serve when inspiration strikes to the person that inspiration strikes to. Like, for example, I always thought it was weird <laughs> in, in young adult wards when, as a woman, I would get visiting teachers back in the day and home teachers, right? But I could only be a visiting teacher to other females, you know? And I'm just kind of like, why can't I be a home teacher to dudes? You know, like there's that limitation there. Men minister to women and women only minister to each other. Like what if I, I see a guy that needs ministering to or that I care about that needs help? Like why can't I just do that without it being weird? Right. Yeah, you could do it, but there's no structure that says like, yeah. this is also important. That's interesting. But like what you're talking about in your ward suddenly that barrier is gone. It's evaporated. Like if I wanted to, I could minister to a brother in the ward that I see needs a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's like, because guys, it's harder for them to ask for help in a patriarchal society or to accept it. I don't know. I just, I just love what your ward is doing so much. I've always like thought it was interesting that we give people authority and stewardship over people who are removed from them. And then they focus on that too much, and then the people closest to them kind of fall by the wayside. And I always thought that was kind of wrong, you know? Like, if we all just focused on ministering to the people closest to us, mm -hmm. then our capacity for service and for love grows. And then as it grows, it will eventually overlap into other circles, you know? And then we'll have this chain of not chain, but like all these spheres that are finally connecting and creating one huge sphere over all of it. Um, but it has to start at home because otherwise then that link is gone. You don't have that sphere, you know, and plus it's hypocritical. But anyway. Yeah, it's challenging. When the prophet introduced the idea of ministering, I think that was his vision. Yeah. It just is going to be a difficult thing to make it work in every ward and make sure that people don't get left by the wayside. So it I think is, our ward yeah. has it nailed down pretty good. I'm sure it's not perfect, but I feel like Ryan and I are being ministered to and are ministering more than before when it was just like, here's your mm -hmm. assignment kind of thing, you know? You're doing it naturally. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it'd work differently in a ward that's bigger geographically. Mm -hmm. I'm in Utah, so we're like two streets pretty much that go down <laughs> a few blocks, I should say. So it's not very big of an area so I know there would be yeah. challenges there in other words but so far it's been really good for us I think it's interesting how you're talking about like 
when you desire to help, then you can. I think we could tie that in with section 17. <laughs> Going back to come follow me now. <laughs> I thought it was interesting in the description, it says these people were moved upon by an inspired desire to be the three special witnesses. So it was of their own initiative. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, yes. I saw that too. I was like, whoa. I thought that was yeah. really cool. We assume that the church is top down, but again, here's another example of how it can work bottom up. Mm-hmm. So Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris were moved upon by an inspired desire to be the three special witnesses. The prophet inquired of the Lord, and this revelation was given in answer, section 17. I think it's cool that it's called an inspired desire. Well, yeah. Tell me your thoughts. Why did you, why did you hesitate there? <laughs> hear your whole thought process i i feel like i've kind of two different thoughts on that i think it's cool i believe that the lord can inspire you to have desires but Mm -hmm. i think it can the challenge is like what desires are inspired and what desires are uninspired you know (laughs) i'm sure there's a lot of people that wanted to be the three witnesses and i don't know if there was a lot of people going to joseph and saying i believe the lord has told me i need to be one of the three witnesses. Uh-huh. But I think it was important in this moment that it was bottom up. Uh-huh. And in this section, in section 17, it says multiple times, it is by your faith that you shall obtain a view uh-huh. of them. That was something that I learned when they were the three witnesses. It wasn't like, okay, come into my room, three witnesses, here's the scriptures. It wasn't Joseph showing them uh-huh. the scriptures. An angel came down and showed the three witnesses the plates. So yeah. it was still by their faith. And, I mean, I think I think we should point out, too, that which is totally in line with what you're saying, that by their faith they, they'll see it. Mary Whitmer, the, the mother of the family, she saw the plates, mm-hmm. um, and she was a witness by her desire, and so was Lucy Harris, <laughs> our lovely favorite heretic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. Come follow me. In two different places, it talks about Mary Whitmer, her witness of the plates. Come Follow Me references this thing called the Knight and Whitmer families. And in that, Mm -hmm. it says a stranger came to her and showed her the plates. And initially, I'm like, wait, (laughs) did someone like steal them and show them to her and then like put them back? Like I was so confused by that wording. And then in the Saints, 1, 73 through 75, it says... Angel Moroni came as a man with carrying a knapsack. So, hmm. and she's, she was like startled by his presence because she didn't really realize the person was there. It doesn't exactly describe his appearance or what he was wearing, but it makes it seem like he was in common clothes in hmm. comparison to when Joseph saw Angel Moroni the first time. It says he like appeared from the heavens. He was wearing a white robe. It seems like Mary had a different experience, and I thought that that was yeah. really interesting. There are other examples and stories with, like, pioneers having ministering angels. Yeah. But this, it kind of insinuates that angels can appear in normal clothing, like 
you know, culturally normal clothing to make it seem like they're normal people. I thought that that was really cool that that was Mary's experience and it was so different. The sad thing is Come Follow Me tells that story, but it doesn't tell Lucy Harris's story and you have to like kind yeah. of dig around to learn of that story. It is sad. My first thought is why did Moroni come to Mary Whitmer wearing normal clothing? If we look at the three witnesses and the eight witnesses, Mary Whitmer and Lucy Harris are never included in that, you know, mm-hmm. but why? Why? They had the same desire, and that desire had the same result. They saw the plates. Mm-hmm. What's the difference there? The difference there is this patriarchal structure where Joseph, in a position of authority, said, okay, yes, you, 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 know? Like, mm-hmm. I'll accept you guys to be the witnesses and nobody else, right? Mm-hmm. Because I want, I want 12, the magic number, you know, or whatever. I mean, I, I'm putting words in his mouth right now. But I almost wonder if the angel appeared to her that way just because it was just kind of like, well... If Joseph is narrow-minded enough to only think of witnesses appearing in a certain way, I'm going to throw that out the window and show Joseph and Mary Whitmer that I could work in a completely different way. And it just goes to show, again, going back to the beginning of our discussion today, that God's power and God's authority are two different things. Mm-hmm. Like, God's power came to Mary Whitmer and came to Lucy Harris and showed them the plates, mm. but God's authority, or at least the authority that Joseph Smith had when choosing the witnesses did not include them, you know? That's really cool. I think that's just more evidence of how our adherence to traditional structures of classical bureaucratic organizations, of patriarchy, of ableism, of work ethic, of racism, and imperialism, and heteronormativity, and I can go on and on and on. (laughs) Like, they are hindrances to God's power actually manifesting in people's lives. I mean, maybe perhaps not hindrances to God's power actually manifesting, because the power was still there. They still showed Lucy Harris and and Mary Whitmer, the plates, but it's a hindrance to these other people actually recognizing that power, you know? And that's the whole thing that God the Father and Jesus said to Joseph Smith when they were in the sacred grove. They told him something about godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's just, that's this whole point, like denying the fact that there is power invalidating other people's experiences, you know? So are we acting like that in the church right now? Or are we being open to the fact that God's power exists beyond structure and validating people's spiritual experiences, even if it runs contrary to what we would expect from the church? Yeah. Wow. Amen. (laughs) In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I love that so much. Anyway, those are, that's basically all my thoughts. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in these chapters? Yeah, just a few more things. Okay. I found it interesting. Oliver Cowdery had a lot of imagery having to do with the body in his description. Yeah, he did. He said, no men in their sober senses could translate in right (laughs) direction. I thought that was an interesting phrase, sober (laughs) senses. When talking about the great apostasy, he said, darkness covered the earth and, quote, gross darkness, the minds of the people. So Hmm. the people's minds had darkness in them. I thought that was interesting. 
there was a lot in Oliver. The reason why I was like so amazed by it is I loved his wording. I believe he's a beautiful writer, but also there was a lot of things that he said that kind of affirmed what we've been saying so far in this podcast. And as I was writing mm-hmm. it, I'm like, haha, we're not just like making it up. Like there's a lot yeah. of connections there that we're making that are real and that are hard to see initially. He said, quote, have men authority to administer in the name of Christ who deny revelations when his testimony is no less than the spirit of prophecy and his religion mm. based, built, and sustained by immediate revelations in all ages of the world when he has had people on the earth. Meaning, again, revelations, visions are holy and people make fun of them a lot, but they're how God works. So yeah. pairing that with the disability There's a lot of prejudice there that is totally unnecessary and ungodly. He also says when describing people that don't have the gospel or the priesthood or baptism, it says, quote, while millions were groping as the blind for the wall, as if blind people are helpless and can't do anything themselves. (laughs) Just bad imagery and comparisons that are ableist. Yeah. And then one part that I thought was really, really cool that really touched my heart was when the angel John the Baptist said to Joseph and Oliver, quote, I am thy fellow servant. Obviously, an angel coming down from heaven is a miraculous experience, but even John the Baptist was humble in that moment and put Mm -hmm. himself on the same level as Joseph and Oliver, that they were Mm -hmm. in this together, they're trying to bring forth the work together, and they're equals. And I thought that that was really cool um I'm not so humble I feel like if I descended from heaven I'd be like boom like (laughs) isn't this amazing you know it's just really cool that there was such humility in that moment boom (laughs) (laughs) I would be the worst angel to send down from heaven I'd be so irreverent and that's probably why I'll never have that job (laughs) oh one scary part I feel like I normally look at God as like very loving and very patient with the natural man. But then there's certain moments where he just like goes so hard. And I, when I read this section, I told Ryan, I was like, I would be so scared all the time if I were Joseph. Wow. He had such an important role and such a burden to bring forth the gospel and to do Mm -hmm. things the right way. And the Lord held him to a really strict standard. If you read section 17, when the three witnesses are chosen, they are commanded to testify of the plates and the power of the translation thereof, quote, that my servant Joseph Smith Jr. may not be destroyed. And I'm like, Uh, by no fault of Joseph's own, these three witnesses have the responsibility to do these things. And if they don't, Joseph will be destroyed. I was like, whoa. Oh, gosh. Hardcore. Like, wow. It's, it was a really important decision. And that's maybe even a bigger reason why it was so important that they were chosen out of their own inspired desire to serve. Like that Mm -hmm. kind of relieved the burden of Joseph being like, I'll choose these people. And if I choose the wrong people, I'll be damned, you know? Yeah. Either way, super hardcore of God, (laughs) but they were held to that standard and they followed through and were continually witnesses of what they saw, despite their own opinions of the church and how it functioned. Some of them later on in their lives didn't have the strongest opinions of the actual church. One more thing. (laughs) Okay. 
just another example of how accommodations are holy and of God. It doesn't say this in Come Follow Me specifically, but Come Follow Me links a 20-minute video that kind of tells more about the story of the Whitmer family Mm -hmm. and their experience of receiving Joseph and Oliver into their home to finish the translation of the scriptures and their sacrifices. Initially, when David Whitmer received a letter from, I don't know if it was Joseph or Oliver, but they were asking to come to the Whitmer home to finish the translation. Initially, the family was like, ah, I don't think we can do this. They were farmers and they had a lot of work still to do on their fields to get it ready, like feeding all the mouths that will come into our home. Uh, we, we don't think we'll be able to do this and surely the Lord will still bring about the work and they'll find another way to accomplish it if we're not able to help. That was kind of their opinion initially. Yeah. And the father of the home said, David, we won't be able to do this unless the plowing of the field is finished. If that happens, then we could help. But if not, it's not going to happen. And David Whitmer went into the field and he plowed all day and he only got like a small portion of the field. This is like acres and acres of Uh work. And he only got a small portion done. At the end of the day, he said a prayer and said, if we need to help Joseph and Oliver complete their work, please allow a way for us to do this. And literally they went to bed and they woke up the next day and went to the field and it was all done. And they hadn't done any of the That's work. amazing. Yeah, it almost makes me just want to cry. Like, it doesn't say what happened. And I don't know if the Whitmer family ever found out what happened. Mm-hmm. But all the work that they needed to do was done. And then they said, okay, that's our answer from God. We need to welcome hmm. Oliver Cowdery and Joseph into our home. And once again, what we can do as humans on our own sometimes isn't enough for what needs to happen with the Lord's work. And the Lord makes accommodations to help us to bring about what needs to happen, whether in our own lives or to bring about the work of salvation. Every time I think of this, I just get so frustrated when accommodations are treated as burdens, because if accommodations Mm. didn't happen, the gospel would have never been restored. There were so many times that the Lord had to make accommodations, despite all of human efforts as imperfect as they were, accommodations had to be made. And it's the same with our lives here. Despite all that disabled people can do, at times we still need accommodations. And that's not a burden. It's normal. It's it's Mm -hmm. how good things are brought about and how the world has to work according to God himself. My new thing is when I read the scriptures, I consistently ask myself what accommodations are made by the Lord Mm -hmm. to bring about his work. And almost every section that we read there's accommodations made and this one was a complete miracle that happened wow that was really powerful katie i need to hear more rants from you because they're amazing (laughs) like i can't be the only person ranting because you got some powerful things to say i love it yeah i just wanted to go back to one thing really quick um from oliver cowdery's account yeah where he's um can you read that sentence about soberness again (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I, like, don't even know what to think of it. I just, it stood out to me. It says, quote, No men in their sober senses could translate in right direction. Okay, so I looked at the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and I looked up sober. Of course you did. Continue. (laughs) What do you mean, of course I did? I just love how you're like, well, let's really find out about this, and you just dig in. I love that. Well, and actually... 
sober is kind of an interesting word to me personally because it it shows up in my patriarchal blessing and it shows up in I think it's Moroni he's talking about how he was a sober child or maybe it was Mormon but anyway so it's interesting to me whenever that pops up I'm I'm just kind of hyper attentive to it but the 1828 dictionary says sober the third one which is my favorite not mad or insane not wild visionary or heated with passion having the regular exercise of cool dispassionate reason oh my gosh i assume this is pretty close to the definition that he had of soberness he's basically saying you cannot receive revelation and translation unless you have a little bit of insanity in you. <laughs> not insanity but just like just a little bit of like you can't rely on your your mind the entire time you have to be a little visionary. In essence, I feel like what he's saying is almost validation for what we were talking about before with people who receive visions or people who are who are neurodivergent, who have these spiritual experiences and people are saying, oh no, that didn't happen. You're crazy. You didn't actually have that vision. Well, according to Oliver Cowdery, any person who thinks that they are too normal or too logical to ever have an experience like that is apparently not prepared to receive revelation and visions oh oh my gosh (laughs) i i just love it i love the permission to be kind of wild and to break free from logic i love the fact that I don't know, there's just the the link between apparent craziness, apparent insanity, what the world sees as insane, and spirituality. I love that. Mm, I think that's very validating for a lot of people who are neurodivergent, who oftentimes have people call them insane or crazy. Yeah, perhaps they're just closer to the spirit world and receive more revelation than neurotypical people do. Yes. Oh, wow. Thank you for listening to us today. We have a whole bunch of content that has come out this week, including two parts of our previous interview with Brooke and our collaboration with Beyond the Block. Be sure to check those out. You can find us on Instagram at Holy Human, on Facebook at Holy Human Podcast, on Patreon, patreon.com slash holyhuman, and our email, if you want to collaborate, is holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. Also, thank you to Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. We also want to say thank you again to our friend Hannah, who's helping us transcribe the episodes. And thank you to our listeners for supporting us. We will be back next week with more wonderful content.